Three quick announcements as you're doing that. One is senior adults. The summertime shindig is this coming Saturday, September 3rd, 11 a.m. at the Giovanni's home. It's a pot potluck lunch. Bring your favorite dish to share. There'll be a special activity and a word from Pastor Scott. And if you could let Linda Giovanni know of your plans to attend. Worship ministry info meeting. A week, no, sorry, three weeks from today, September 18th. Here in, in the worship center after the morning worship, if you have any interest and any possibility of serving in some facet of our worship ministry, come out and just find out information that afternoon from, from praise team to singing in the choir to tech ministry, lights, sound, there's, there's, I'm not listing them all. So if you have an interest to check it out, come after church on the 18th of September There'll be some light snacks provided as well. And let Pastor Rick or Hayward know of your plans there for account. And then lastly, just a little celebrative. Most of you have heard through the RML and so forth, but concrete was poured in the ground foundation for the addition this past Monday. Praise the Lord. And continue to pray for that. I think blocks go up this week and so forth, so... We praise the Lord for that. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the time of worship that we have shared together and continue to bless now as we worship in your word. Please anoint this time. Lord, protect from error. Bring your truth out clearly. Please work in our hearts with your word to sanctify your people and to draw those not yet in the faith. Christ. And then bless the table at the end of our service as well. But we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever desire to be perfect? It's a good desire. Christ lets us know that he wants us to be perfect. But I, I know for me, sometimes my desire is not so much to be perfect by God's grace and for God's glory, but to look perfect for my glory. And that's not good. And the reality is, I can't be perfect myself. Now, one day in Christ, I'll be made like Christ, by Christ. And praise God for that. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says in Romans 3. And then even once we receive the gift of salvation that, that Christ gives for all who repent and believe on him, we still struggle with sin throughout this life. In fact, in 1 John, the apostle tells us that if we say we have no sin, we're calling God a liar. It, it's a struggle we have throughout our life. And if you're, if you're here and you're not yet a born-again believer in Christ, please know that at least if we're holding to the word of God, we're not claiming to be perfect. We shouldn't claim to be perfect. We're just forgiven in Christ by God's grace. We're, we're being transformed by his grace. We're better than we were, but we're not better than others. It's, it's all about Christ and what Christ does. So believers, when we struggle with sin, when we sin, 
how do we respond rightly? And if you're not a believer, this will have application because it starts with, the right way to respond starts with coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to answer this question, I want us to spend some time this morning in this passage where it's one of King David's sins. And, of course, we don't want to emulate his sin. Ideally, we don't sin to begin with. But we do. So once we, once we have fallen into sin, how should, from that point, how should we respond rightly as a believer? And, and from that point in this passage, we see David setting a great example. Speaking of a, of a different Old Testament event, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, the apostle Paul says, Now these things happened as examples for us. And I think that applies to this passage as well and throughout the Old Testament. And so... To respond rightly to sin, first, recognize your responsibility for your sin. Your sin is your sin. It's not God's sin. It's not Satan's sin. It's not others' sin. It's your sin. And my sin is my sin. Look at verse 1 here of 1 Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Let me back up to the parallel passage in 2 Samuel 24. 1. You don't have to turn there, but in, in that passage, it starts out speaking of how the Lord was angry with Israel and incited David to order this count of Israel. Now, the chronicler here in 1 Chronicles, which I think may likely be Ezra, but whoever it is, he, he assumes that his readers know Samuel and Kings. And so they would know this previous uh, telling of this event in David's life. And they would know God's sovereignty in it. And so here he adds this detail that God used Satan as an instrument in this event. Satan can only do what God allows Satan to do. That's clear from Job, for instance. But God in his sovereignty here is not sinning. As we read through the scriptures in James 1, it states absolutely clearly God doesn't sin himself and God doesn't tempt us to sin, anyone to sin. Now Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8, 28, he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's sovereign, including over sin, but he does not sin. So your sin is not God's sin. It's your sin. My sin is my sin. And what about Satan being involved? He, he incites David to sin here. He may incite us to sin. Not necessarily directly, but, but he has sway over the whole world system around us that's constantly tempting us to sin against the Lord. He's a real enemy. Three times in the Old Testament, he's called Satan. 34 times in the New Testament. 36 times called the devil. Ephesians 6 speaks of the armor of God that we need to put on to stand against his schemes. It's a real battle. He's a real enemy. He's very powerful. We can't stand against him. But Christ is infinitely more powerful. And so as believers, Satan can't make us do it. The old, the old devil made me do it. That's, that's a false idea. He may tempt us. He wants us to sin. He's against us. But our sin is our sin. If we sin, we chose to sin. 
and we're fully responsible for it. Look at verse 2 here in 1 Chronicles 21. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. That's from the south to the north, the whole of the land, and bring me word that I may know their number. David gives the command for the census, and the context makes clear it's a sin. Now, taking a census by itself isn't a sin. And in Numbers 26, God commands a census. But the text is clear that for David, in this instance, it's a sin. So why is it a sin? I think there's some clear, clear implications that point to why it's a sin. One would be his purpose, verse 2, and then we'll see in verse 5, is he wants to know how many fighting age men do I have? How big can I make my army? And rather than trusting the Lord as he has for protection, David seems here to start to be trusting himself and his military might. Seems to be some pride has come up and self-trust rather than trust in the Lord. This is a sad moment because David, through his life, is such an example of trusting the Lord. He trusted him against the lion and the bear. He trusted him against Goliath when no one else would. And all through his life, in, in Psalm 20, verse 7, which is a psalm about being sung of our dependence on the Lord as we go to battle. And in verse 7, he says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And yet at this moment, he lost trust in the Lord. And he became prideful and self-reliant and makes this sinful decision. The, the from Beersheba to Dan would, would imply he wants everyone counted, including, and, and Joab's reaction seems to also indicate, including the tribe of Levi, which in that case, Numbers 1 clearly states Levi, that the men of Levi were not to be warriors. They were to stick with serving the tabernacle and the priests. And so it seems to indicate he was directly contradicting that and then in his command, he says, bring me a report that I may know the number. He's being self-centered. It's all about him instead of the Lord. So outwardly, David's actions seemed okay. He just asked, he's a king asking for a census. But his motive was sinful. That's an example for us to examine our hearts. Is there pride welling up? Am I beginning to trust myself? Am I failing to trust the Lord? And it can show up in many ways. Uh, pride and failure to trust the Lord in, in finances could lead to a, a wrongful use of credit or lead to greediness and, and pursuing things we shouldn't. Pride and failure to trust the Lord in just a, a, a difficult situation. We might be tempted to lie or deceive to try to, to skirt that or get around that difficulty. Pride and failure to trust the Lord with our sexuality can lead to, to sexual immorality or adultery or, or the whole LBGTQ plus array of, of sins, according to Scripture. We could go on and on, and it all starts in the heart. Sin starts in our heart. And Christ made clear in the Sermon on the Mount that the sin in our heart is sin. And then if we then act out on it, that's sin in addition to that. We, like David, are fully responsible for our sin because it's our sin. 
And your sin is also not others' sin. We have that tendency. Look what you made me do. And maybe the other person did sin against us. But if we responded in sin, it's our sin. We can't blame our sin on what someone else has done to us. And here with David, it's particularly uh, driven home because David decides to sin even when being appealed to to not sin this sin by Joab. Joab here appeals to King David. He's, he remains submissive. This is his king. He's, he praises him, but he's very clear. Please don't do this thing. Many times Joab's not this, but in this situation, he's the one standing for truth and righteousness. Look at verse 3 and following. Joab said, may the Lord add his, to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David. And all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. As an aside, we, we may have times like Joab where we have an authority going a sinful direction and need to follow that example, to have the courage to appeal and stand for what's right and true. And Joab, even though he had to submit and to go count, he, he did not go in the direct disobedience with the tribe of Levi. He didn't count them. And it doesn't say exactly why he also didn't count Benjamin other than this whole thing was abhorrent to him. Maybe because the tabernacle was housed in Benjamin's territory at this time. Maybe they were just interrupted. The count cut short. But for whatever reason, those two tribes were not counted. Small side note, if, you, if you're glancing back at 2 Samuel 24, the numbers are different. The counts are different, though it's relaying the same event. And when we find things here and there through scripture like that, it doesn't mean there's an error. Because of the doctrine of God breathing out the scriptures, we know the original writings were without any errors. And so it's... You look for a reasonable explanation. Two possibilities here. One would be in the transmission of the text. We don't have the original texts. that got changed accidentally. I think the more likely explanation is the way of, of Samuel's counting and the way of the chronicler's counting were different. For instance, in 2 Samuel, the northern tribe's count was 800,000. Here it's 1,100,000. If they had a standing army of 300,000 that the chroniclers including, but Samuel didn't, he was just counting what other men can be drawn up. That would explain, so there's those kind of explanations. But let's keep going to our main point. Your sin is your sin. And your sin displeases God. God hates our sin. He hates your sin. He hates my sin. It displeases him. Look at verse 
7. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. God was displeased with this thing. What about us? Is there a thing in my life? Is there a thing in your life right now that displeases the Lord? I think of, of Hebrews 11.6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Is there something where we're not trusting the Lord and therefore slipping in to sin? God's jealous for our faithfulness to him. In fact, in James 4, he says, friendship with the world is enmity with him. He hates our sin and he holds us accountable for our sin. He brings judgment. He brings chastisement. He brings discipline when we sin. Here it says he struck Israel. It doesn't specify at this point what he did, but he struck Israel. And there's a truth throughout Scripture that Obedience brings blessing, but disobedience to God brings cursing. Sin brings consequences. If we sow sin, we'll reap the consequences of sin. Now, if we're in Christ, praise God, we have eternity without those eternal consequences of the wrath of God because Christ took it in our place. But all sin brings consequences. Either Christ took it for us or we will pay for it forever. So thank God for the... And throughout this passage about sin, it's constantly pointing us to the answer of Christ. In our sin, God is displeased. And so often in our day, we're tempted as Christians and as churches and as preachers and thank God that's not, that doesn't happen here, thank God. But it's so tempting, we see it so often, to bypass this reality that God is displeased with us in our sin. We want to rush people to, you're okay, you're enough, everything's right, God, God loves you. But if we bypass the reality that he is displeased with our sin they will not really get to God's love. They will not really get to forgiveness. They won't get to be right with God through Christ because they won't see the need. We're undercutting our own heart for our loved ones and our family and our coworkers and our neighbors and our nation if we won't tell them the truth that God is displeased with our sin and we're sinners and we're responsible. It's our sin. So be truthful and for ourselves, take that to heart so that we run to Christ to be saved and forgiven and cleansed. Recognize your responsibility for your sin. And secondly, repent and rest in the Lord. Look at verse 8. David said to God, I have sinned greatly and that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant for I have done very foolishly. David's repentance is to God. It's specific. He owns responsibility for his sin. He doesn't seem in any way to minimize it. 
or to try to excuse it. He requests forgiveness and cleansing. He states the reality that I lost faith in God who's been so faithful to me. I was foolish to do that. We too should humble ourselves and repent of our sin. If we had time, we could go to James 4. Look that up later. James 4, 6 to 10. He's calling us to do the very same thing. And when we repent as believers, we receive forgiveness and cleansing. I mentioned the, the Apostle John in 1 John saying, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. In the midst of that, he says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're promised that in Christ. Note here as well David's example of how to respond when trouble, when trouble strikes our life. God struck Israel in verse 7. Verse 8, David responds by, by examining himself. Is there unrepentant sin? He found there was, and he repented. When trouble strikes, we should examine ourselves for sin. Now, now be very careful. God's clear in his word that there are other reasons God allows or sends trouble into our lives. So it's not automatically, directly, we send this sin and we have this trouble. For instance, in John chapter 9, a man born blind. Why was he born blind? The apostles asked, was it his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus said, neither. It was so that I may show my glory. It's for this moment, so that I could heal him and bring glory to myself. So troubles are not always directly related to specific sin. But there's still, God's still just in those troubles because we're still sinners. If we had all that we deserved right now, we would all be in hell suffering eternal wrath. And so the fact that we aren't is mercy, even for unbelievers. It's the mercy of God. He's never unjust in the troubles he brings in our lives. We deserve far worse. So trouble's not always related to a specific sin, but sometimes it is. So we should, we should examine to see, is it? Is God using this to chasten me? Is God using this to discipline me and see that sin and bring me to repentance? Because that's mercy, to not let us just keep going away from him, but to, to bring us back. In David's example, he, he does not try to justify himself. He doesn't try to step in and fix himself the mess he made. He repents, turns to the Lord, rests in the Lord. Notice also that how we react to trouble, trials that come at us, can be very indicative of where we are with the Lord. Are we, are we saved or are we, are we not saved? If saved, are we walking right with the Lord right now or, or we, have we wandered off? And gotten into pride and self-trust and, and sin. And so David's an example of the right response when trouble comes. He ran to the Lord. He was, he was experiencing severe discipline from the Lord, but he still ran to the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He knew the Lord is the one with mercy. It's my sin that's worthy of the trouble but I'm going to the Lord to take me through the trouble because he's a merciful God. 
Or do we respond by running from the Lord? In, in 2 Chronicles 28, it talks of King Ahaz. And they were defeated. There was trouble in Israel. And it says he started worshiping the gods of the people that just defeated Israel. He said, if, they, if these gods help them beat us, then I'm going to pray to them to help, to help Israel. And it says it was the destruction of Ahaz and of Israel because he ran away from God instead of to God in the trouble. What do we do? How do we respond to trouble? Run to the Lord. Repent and then rest in him. Humbly submit to God's judgment, to what God is doing, trusting God's mercy. Look at verse 9. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go, speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. God spoke to the prophet Gad, David's seer, to give David this choice of chastisement, of discipline. God's sovereignty and justice are evident here. God can discipline however he chooses to. He was right. He had the power to punish any way he wants. We need to recognize that, humbly submit to that, and that's how David responds. Good verses 11 and 12. So God came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now therefore, consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. The angel of the Lord. As we read through the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord speaks of God the Son appearing pre-incarnate. And I believe that's the case here as well. See it in Genesis 16, 18, 48, Judges 6, Judges 13, Zechariah 3, to Joshua, early in the book of Joshua. Uh, we see it in Genesis 22, which at the end of this chapter, we're going to be on Mount Moriah. They are now in the midst of Jerusalem, which was where Genesis 22 takes place, where God had Abraham sacrifice his son Isaac. And at the last moment, the angel of the Lord called and stopped him. So now I know you trust me. You, you, you're willing to give your son and provided the ram as a substitute in the thicket. So many things in that story pointing towards Christ. And so we see here in 1 Chronicles 21, the angel of the Lord, and he's executing justice on sinners, which foreshadows his second coming, if you go to Revelation 19, he has the sword in his mouth and he's coming to execute the wrath of God. Christ pre-incarnate executes wrath and judgment. Christ in his second coming will execute wrath and judgment. Thank God that in between, in his first coming, in his incarnation, he came not to condemn, it says in John 3. Because we're condemned already, he came to save. He came Humbly, he came gently and lowly. He's the answer. We're sinners. We deserve wrath. Christ came to be the answer. 
This passage is about sin and how we respond rightly. It makes clear at multiple points the only answer, but the answer is Christ. Look on to verse 13. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Great distress. When we're in sin, it brings great distress. In Psalm 32, after a different sin, David describes that that weight of sin that was upon him. And here he's repenting to the Lord and he's trusting himself to the Lord. And he says, I don't want to be in the hands of man with, with war or in trying to survive a famine. I'm going to trust the Lord. The three days with the Lord because his mercy is very great. And note that as king, his choice is the worst choice for himself. Because in, in warfare, the king's going to be protected. In famine, if anybody gets food, it's going to be the king. But in pestilence, he's as wide open to it as anybody. But he was trusting himself to the Lord. Let's move on to point three. Remain in this repentant rest in the Lord. So we need to repent and rest in the Lord And we need to remain in repentant rest in the Lord. And there are different aspects of that. First, realize the terrible consequences of your sin, of my sin. Verse 14, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. We tend to think our sin is small. My sin's no big deal. It's It's not that much. David probably thought that. He was a king asking for a a, a count of his people. But our sin is always an offense to God. And God is a holy God, infinite in his holiness. And so our offense is an infinite offense. David says in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. So God's killing 70,000 men in Israel is put in perspective. It's horrific. This is, a, this is a horrible judgment of God. But it wasn't on innocent people. Those 70,000 men, Romans 3.23 applies to them, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In addition, 2 Samuel 24 says that the nation had provoked the anger of the Lord prior to David committing this sin. And while our sin is ultimately against the Lord, and the Lord is right in whatever judgment he chooses to bring, we also need to recognize our sin impacts other people. It harms other people. In this case, David's sin as king cost 70,000 men their lives. And many, if not most of them, had wives who were now widows, children now orphaned, other family and loved ones. And David was king, so his sin impacted his nation. We're not in that position, but, but our sin impacts those around us, and especially those for whom we have some responsibility or some authority. A husband's sin particularly impacts his wife. 
A father and mother's sin will in particular ways impact their children. A pastor's sin will particularly impact the congregation. A teacher's sin, their students, and, and so on and so on. And there are obvious examples. We've seen adultery absolutely devastate multiple families. We, we see abandonment devastate. We see pornography devastate. We see lying and cheating and stealing wreak devastation. But there are also less obvious sins that can be very harmful. Just neglect, procrastination, failure to, to grow in Christ. If I'm not growing as I should in Christ, I'm not being sanctifying to my wife as I should. Our, our Kent Hughes said it so well that, praise God, if my wife is growing in spite of me, but God's design is that she'd be growing because I'm an instrument in his hand to sanctify my wife, as described in Ephesians 5. Or a failure to witness of Christ. In Ezekiel 3.18, it speaks of if we fail to warn with God's warning, there's blood on our, on our hands. Thank God he, he's sovereign in his grace. He makes clear that every one of his elect, his called ones, he's going to bring to himself. But he's also clear that we should be a faithful means of that. And when we fail, we're responsible for that failure. I, I think of years ago, a neighbor, young man, um, had a few conversations, said a few things in the way of witness. But I presumed I had lots of time. And he suddenly died. And I was convicted because I pray he had heard enough of the gospel and he repented and trusted Christ, but I don't know and I can't know because I didn't finish the gospel conversations that I should have finished. We trust God's sovereignty, but we're still responsible to be faithful. Our sin brings consequences. In David's case, 70,000 died and Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. Look at verse 15. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. <coughs> Excuse me. Replace selfish pride with sacrificial service. Look how David responds now to, to, to this. Verse 16, Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders covered with sackcloth fell on their faces. David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Christ is over the city of Jerusalem with a drawn sword of judgment ready. And David and the elders show repentance. And David intercedes for the people of Jerusalem. And as he intercedes, he recognizes his sin and his responsibility with no excuses and no minimizing. And, and he asks to receive all the punishment himself and not the people. 
And he pleads that they be spared. He's remaining in, re in repentant rest. <coughs> Excuse me. And he's replacing the selfish pride that led him to ask for the census with the sacrificial service on behalf of his people. Repentance is not a one-time thing. As believers, we should seek to always be penitent over our sin. Receive and enjoy the forgiveness that's ours in Christ when we come to Christ, but remain humble, hating sin, ready to repent quickly when we fall into sin. Follow David's example of, of not only asking forgiveness for us, but interceding for others, seeking to serve others. David sinned in selfish pride. Now he's serving others in intercession and offering to receive their suffering. It's reflective of Christ. Of course, Christ is sinless. Christ is perfect in these things, but David is still Christ-like at this moment. Christ took on humanity to live a sinless life for his people. God, dem God does demand perfection. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And every single one of us fail. And so Christ came and lived that life for us. So that when we put saving faith in him, he credits us with his perfect righteousness. And Christ took the sins of his people on himself on the cross. And took the eternal wrath of God deserved and paid it all. Satisfied it there on the cross. And then he died and was buried and he rose again the third day. And now he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for his people. As we've said earlier, if you're not yet in the faith, Christ made the way. Run, run to him. And then David's example goes on. Render obedience. Look at verses 18 and 19. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. God instructs David through Gad. We should obey the Lord's word. And for us, we don't have a Gad coming to tell us the word from the Lord. We have the recorded words of the Lord. He's completed the canon of Scripture. These are God-breathed words. And so when we read the Bible, or we hear the Bible preached, or we hear the Bible taught, we're hearing the Word of God. And a preacher's not perfect, but as Pastor Scott says many times, go check it out. And if what's said is true to the Bible, you're responsible to render obedience to God's Word. And so am I. And be faithful to that by His grace in Christ. Look on to verse 20 and following. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, and Ornan was threshing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me the site of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people." Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for wood, and wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all. But king David said to Ornan, No, 
But I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Side note, we have here another discrepancy, it seems, from 2 Samuel 24, which mentions this, uh, a much less amount of silver for the threshing floor. Here it speaks of 600 shekels of gold for the site. And I think that answers that seeming discrepancy. The, the mention is just about the threshing floor in, in Samuel. Here he's talking about the whole, the whole of Mount, the top of Mount Moriah, the whole property that the temple would be built on and all the animals and all of the equipment, the price for all of that. And David purchases that to render obedience to the Lord. His example goes on, rely on the Lord for forgiveness and deliverance. Verse 26, then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Richard Pratt points out that the, the descent of fire to an altar to consume the sacrifice, this is the, four, the fourth of, of four times in, the, in all of the Old Testament that God does this directly like that. And on each occasion, it displayed extraordinary pleasure from God toward his people. That's what we're seeing here. God is gifting them through them us and what he's doing here. So the sacrifice itself, the burnt offering, was for propitiation. Big word meaning the satisfaction of God's wrath at sin. And then the fellowship or peace offering was an offering of gratitude, having been brought now through that propitiation into peace and fellowship with God, express that gratitude. Both of these sacrifices point to Christ, who is the ultimate, the once-for-all sacrifice that actually satisfied the wrath of God. These sacrifices in the Old Testament just pointed to that. And as they trusted God for that coming provision, it satisfied God's wrath temporarily at that, at that time. David here makes these sacrifices in faith, trusting that coming provision of the Lord. And about a thousand years later, it, it comes right near this very place. As believers, we were justified by grace through faith, and we should live the same way. Continue to trust Christ for forgiveness and deliverance day by day, week by week, year by year. If not saved, repent. Look to Christ. Believers, when we do repent and trust Christ, we are indeed spared judgment. There may be consequences here, now, in this life, but when we go to be with Christ, it's done. He's paid it all. We'll be made like him in sinlessness. We will be with him forever. We won't go to hell. We won't go to any kind of purgatory. We're not going to suffer. From the moment we go to be with the Lord, we're with the Lord if we are in Christ. Look at verse 27. The Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. On judgment day, for believers, the sword of the Lord is in its sheath. But for unbelievers... It will be out and it will fall. There is absolutely a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And the one way for both is Jesus Christ. Repent and believe on Christ for salvation. 
And finally, our, our fourth point, revere the Lord for working all, even our sin, together for his glory and your good. In David's case, God provided the location for the temple. God used David's sin and then his discipline of David to lead David to find and purchase this ground upon which Solomon would build the temple. Look at verse 28 and following. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifice there. <clears throat> For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. But David would not go before it to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David's terror at the Lord's sword in verse 30 refers to his realization that God is pointing out this place, Ornan's threshing floor, which is also Mount Moriah, where, David, where, where uh, Abraham had taken Isaac, and God spared Isaac and gave the substitute. It's all, this is the same place. And now God is indicating this is where he wants the temple to be built, where worship would be centered, and where for a thousand years there would be Passover lambs sacrificed, pointing to Christ as the Passover lamb. There would be these burnt offerings for sin, and these peace offerings. There would be the annual Day of Atonement offerings. All of it crying out, the Redeemer's coming, the Redeemer's coming, the Redeemer's coming. The Lord will provide for his people and their salvation. Sin is an awful thing. But our God is a great God who provides salvation for all who will repent and believe on him. He made this place. And, and David announced it in verses, verse 1 of chapter 22. And then in chapter 3 of 2 Chronicles, verse 1, Solomon builds the temple right here. And then God also here points to the Redeemer, as, as, as we were just saying. All of this pointing to Christ. And <clears throat> David's response is to revere the Lord, to worship him. He's grateful for forgiveness. He's grateful for mercy. He's grateful for salvation, and we should be the same. If we're believers, we're recipients of the grace and forgiveness of God. Thank God for it. And so to respond rightly to sin, recognize your responsibility for your sin. Repent and rest in the Lord. Remain in repentant rest in the Lord and revere the Lord for the amazing things that he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for recording this event, this sin, and then the responses to it for us. And Lord, let us take to heart the example to respond rightly when we sin. To not run away from you, Lord, but to run to you in Christ. To repent. To trust. To rest in you. To know your forgiveness and the joy of your salvation and the transforming work of your spirit. And pray, we pray, Lord, those with us today not yet in Christ, you would draw them.
to that salvation. And those of us who are, Lord, that we would revere you for that. We'd worship you. We'd thank you. We'd be filled with gratitude to you. And Father, we pray all these things in in Christ's name. Amen.